we're very indebted to Charles Small tonight. Charles is the director of the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy, and it's ISCAP that's organized this event and brought it to us. So I want to thank Charles and ask him to come up and speak. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Dean Schizer uh, for facilitating ISGAP's partici participation here this evening. ISGAP is a, um, a research institute. We run academic programming at high caliber universities such as the Columbia Law School, Harvard, McGill University, Fordham, the University of Miami, Stanford, and we just opened actually a center at Sapienza University in Rome. And we invite scholars from around the world to focus on anti-Semitism from an interdisciplinary perspective with a focus on the contemporary context. Um, so it's a great honor for us to be here at the law school to have an event. I'd like to acknowledge some of the executive me committee members of ISGAP that are here. Uh, Mr. Jim Schreiber, who uh, made the uh, original introductions to Columbia. I'm grateful that you're here and that this event is taking place. And of course, to Ambassador Halevi and Mrs. Halevi for being here this evening. And I'd like to invite Professor Richard Stone of, of the Columbia Law School to introduce Professor Halevi. Mr. Halevi. Ambassador, Mr. Halevi. to participate in another uh, ISGAP uh, program. I congratulate ISGAP on the way it uh, is growing and the in great institutions which is uh, spreading its very worthwhile uh, programs. And it's my special privilege tonight uh, to introduce uh, Ephraim Halevi. I do want to say uh, I am a recent chair, the first Columbia faculty member, I believe, in history to be a chair of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations, in which capacity I spent virtually full time uh, for a couple of years uh, dealing with the America-Israel relationship and uh, issues uh, related uh, to Israel. Uh, I have only rarely taught in this room. I teach relatively smaller classes than fit in this room. But there is a room right across that we passed getting here, room 107, uh, that I most recently taught in, and to show you how balanced the programming of all kinds is at uh, Columbia Law School, there's a sign, don't know quite what it means, but there's a sign out that room that points with an arrow, and it says Islam, Sharia, and something else. So we are, we're full of interesting programs uh, that uh, are used are our facilities. Uh, Ephraim Halevi, who is going to uh, treat us tonight with what I assure you will be, without knowing what he's going to say or talk about, a very interesting time, uh, is one of the absolute fixtures in both the intelligence community and the strategic uh, planning community in Israel uh, for the last many uh, decades. Uh, he is really a serious player uh, on that scene. Uh, a trained lawyer, he claims not to be an academic, though he has run a strategic center uh, in, at the Hebrew University, and his writing, his articles, and his recent book uh, are considered extremely uh, thoughtful and important. 
but he says he is uh, not an academic, and I, on the whole, think that that's really quite a good thing. It means maybe that his judgment is good about uh, the issues of the day. Uh, I, uh, he, he has a tremendous career uh, in the vaunted and famed Mossad. He probably has more stories that he would, could tell you but would have to shoot you if he told you exactly what had happened, and that's, I think, what some of these uh, guards are doing all over the place uh, to help us uh, get through the evening. Uh, but he uh, went through the ranks of the Mossad in virtually every important post and ended up uh, as the director. And that is uh, genuinely one of the most important jobs uh, in Israel, as I think everyone knows. Uh, one one uh, position that he has held and uh, that, that might have been thought to be secret uh, during the time, but has now been publicized, he was a very key player in the negotiation of the peace treaty uh, with uh, Jordan. Um, he has been the top strategic advisor uh, to virtually, as I can count, virtually every Israeli prime minister but one, I won't name the one, uh, since the advent of uh, Yitzhak Shamir after uh, the end of the term of Menachem Begin. Uh, and uh, I'm sure he has lots of things to say tonight. I will tell you that you cannot characterize Ephraim uh, Halevi's views he is a practical person who responds not in a doctrinaire way, but he responds to the particular situation, is fully capable of pleasing or offending any point of view uh, at any given time. And I look forward to whatever he chooses to do tonight. Uh, Ephraim Halevi. <coughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, good evening. Uh, thank you. Uh, for introducing me uh, in terms which uh, I feel uh, uh, I now have to try and meet, and uh, <laughs> I'll do my best. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Small for uh, inviting me uh, to uh, speak under the auspices of ISCAP, which I think is a truly important and uh, very valuable addition to the plethora uh, of uh, institutes and American uh, groups dealing with problems of uh, state and of the Jewish community at large. And I also like to note uh, several uh, friends, dear friends in the audience uh, who uh, know a little about me, uh, maybe a little too much about me, and uh, I'll try not to offend them this evening. Um, I'd like uh, to begin with two stories. Um, I promise you I'll reach the subject matter of my talk this evening that I learned from one of uh, the Prime Ministers who I served, uh, Ariel Sharon, that every time he was asked to speak about something, he used to say, I'll come to it in a moment, but first I'd like to say something uh, in preface of what I'm going to answer to you. And then he usually didn't, never used to meet the uh, question he was asked. But this time, I think it's important. I think the it uh, warrants something because um, some of the things I'd like to talk about are influenced by two um, little, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, events in which I participated and which I think are important to understand what it is we're talking about. <clears throat> um, as we were working on the idea of a peace treaty between Israel and Jordan, 
Um, we came across a lot of problems which related to uh, issues which were far beyond peace and war. And therefore the Prime Minister of Bareti Sakrabin uh, uh, instructed me and instructed those who were involved in this not to divulge uh, to anybody what we were talking about with the Jordanians except uh, with his uh, explicit uh, permission. As a result of that, um, when uh, we achieved a breakthrough around uh, April of 1994, um, the issue of having a, uh, an open meeting between the uh, principals, between the, the Prime Minister of Israel and King Hussein came up. And um, after some uh, <coughs> to and fro, uh, it was agreed that uh, the principals would meet. Um, and uh, King Hussein agreed to meet uh, Mr. Rabin publicly for the first time. I said publicly because he had met with the uh, king on more than one occasion, both uh, when he was prime minister in the 90s <coughs> and also when he was prime minister between 74 to 77. And um, <coughs> originally the planned um, um, event, the planned meeting, uh, was going to take place somewhere uh, along the uh, southern border between Israel and Jordan in the Arabah Desert. And uh, the uh, king and the prime minister were planning to meet and uh, to reveal that something important was happening and for the first time, uh, two countries at war, their leaders are going to be. The United States intervened uh, when they heard in Washington that the meeting was going to take place uh, in the Arabah. And they said that since uh, this was going to be a wedding and the President of the United States was going to pay the cost of the wedding, they thought that it was appropriate that this should happen in Washington. And of course the two principals uh, agreed and then they, uh, Rabin called me and said, look, I don't want it to be said that I'm traveling all the way to Washington just to shake the hand of the king. We have to uh, put some content into this meeting, into this event. And he instructed me to um, go over to Jordan and to uh, discuss with the Jordanians a uh, document, which would document uh, in some detail what it is that the principles would like to accomplish, and also to uh, suggest a series of measures that would be uh, taken even before there was a formal peace treaty. And indeed, um, I traveled uh, to Jordan and uh, drew up what ultimately became what was named the Washington Declaration, and um, um, traveled to the United States uh, a day before uh, the Prime Minister came in, and at that moment, <coughs> uh, the Prime Minister, in order not to get into too much trouble uh, at home, uh, revealed the contents of the document uh, to two uh, lawyers in Israel uh, who had served uh, in the government, uh, one who is now a Justice of the Supreme Court, Eliakim Rubinstein, and the other was Dr. Meir Ozen, who was also one of the ambassador to Washington, and uh, a lawyer in his own right. And uh, I hope you will not be offended when I say that lawyers will always be lawyers. And since they were not uh, partly privy to the uh, drafting of the document, obviously they found a lot of faults inside the document. <laughs> and uh, one of the faults they found was that 
there was a, a uh, sentence saying that um, with the uh, Washington Declaration coming into effect, the state of belligerency between Israel and Jordan uh, uh, will be coming to an end, has come to an end, has come to an end. And they said that the state of belligerency is not enough. You have to say that the state of war has come to an end. And they were very insistent on that. And the day before the event uh, on the White House lawn was going to take place, a uh, crisis uh, broke out. And I was instructed to tell the Jordanians that we had to uh, make this amendment. And this was uh, against what had been originally agreed with the Jordanians. In other words, once the government had been agreed between the parties, there would be no changes. And um, I um, approached the Jordanians and said uh, that we have to make a, uh, an amendment. And within an hour or two, uh, of course, I got back a reply saying that, sure, we can make an amendment, but if we're going to make amendments, we also like to make some amendments, so we have uh, 15 amendments we'd like to make. And then it became very obvious that amendments and amendments and amendments and amendments, we probably would not be able to have the ceremony the following day. Uh, and Rabin had already uh, landed in Washington at Andrews Air Force Base, and everybody was geared for the White House uh, uh, event. Um, nevertheless, uh, under pressure of, the, of these two uh, eminent lawyers in Israel, uh, both of them friends of mine actually, and remained friends despite the fact that they didn't know that I was uh, usurping their authority and uh, drawing up a legal document. I only studied law and, at the Hebrew University uh, over 50 years ago, and this is not considered a sufficient uh, experience and status and stature to be able to draw up a document of this uh, importance. But nevertheless, uh, um, they insisted. And um, I told the Jordanians that they couldn't make the, any, any amendments. Only we could make this amendment. This amendment was something special. It was different. It was fundamental. It was this and that and the other. OK. <clears throat> and um, I was arguing this on the telephone with my uh, uh, Jordanian uh, uh, counterpart, and um, in the middle of the discussion on the phone, suddenly the king uh, appeared on the phone. He had been listening to this telephone conversation, and he said, you know, uh, let me tell you something. Um, I will make it clear in my statement that I mean that the state of war is coming to an end, because let me reveal to you that in Arabic we only have one word for belligerency and for war. And therefore, if I say that the state of war, kharm, kharm, which is kherib in Hebrew, a sword, the state of, of the sword is coming to an end, it means belligerency and it also means war. And I came back to the lawyers and the, the, they said, yes, but you know, the English version, the English version is the important thing and therefore, it has to be said that um, the state of war will come to an end. I said, I've just spoken to the king, and they, he said this and that and the other. They said, the king is the king, but we are lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, that's true. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't uh, dispute the fact. But nevertheless, um, 
we did not state in the document what was the language which should govern the uh, interpretation of the document. Because the, the document was drawn up in English. And the, uh, there was a Hebrew version, and there was an Arab, uh, Arabic version. But they, should, they said, OK, then let us state that there is a Hebrew version. And the Hebrew version will be the version which will uh, be the uh, uh, version which counts as far as Israel is concerned. So I went back to the Jordanians and explained it to them. And they said, well, you know, uh, why should uh, Hebrew uh, take uh, paramount importance over Arabic? Uh, after all, uh, the number of people speaking Hebrew is how many? 10 million and so forth. And the number of people who know Arabic is something like uh, 500 million, 600 million, the entire Muslim world. So, well, you know, um, Hebrew was a language which was there before Arabic was. We have, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm saying this because language, language is so important. Language is important not only in conducting uh, negotiations. Language is also important in terms of your state of mind. And the following day, when the, the king uh, stood up and spoke um, uh, in English, in perfect English, without a piece of paper in his hand, and he uh, committed uh, to heart every word he was going to say, he reached this point, and he said, it says in the document, state of religiency. In Arabic, there's only one word, but there's kharab, and the state, the state is coming to an end. And there was thunderous applause of the White House law. But later the, the, lawyer, the lawyer said, he didn't say the state of uh, uh, war has come to an end. He said it is coming to an end. In other words, maybe it hasn't yet come to an end. I said, well, we can't ask the um, king to make the speech again. I mean, we can't tell the President Clinton, you know, bring all the people back. Let's come back the following day come back to the White House lawn, and then we're going to have another ceremony, and then we'll uh, repeat it and so forth, and we'll change this word. Especially as uh, on, the, uh, on the Jordanian side, there was a Jordanian neighbor, uh, lawyer, whose name was uh, Abdul Hakim Khassauna, Aun Khassauna, who later became a justice at the International Court in Hague, and he was no friend of Israel, and he was always saying that instead of saying, has come to an end, that to say, will come to an end. Uh, in other words, conditional. And we didn't want it that way. But the king had said, somehow or other, will come to an end. So yes, words are important, extremely important. And the words not only, as I said, indicate the substance, they also indicate the state of mind. Incident number two. On the night that the final um, peace treaty was negotiated um, at the Hashmiya uh, Palace in Jordan, um, discussions were going on late into the night. And at one moment, uh, in a state of elation, uh, the king said, let us say, amongst other things, we don't have it in the Washington Declaration, that once we have um, a... Uh, peace treaty between the countries, all legislation <coughs> relating to war will no longer be applicable to the relationship between Israel and Jordan. And Rabin said, uh, that's a wonderful idea. Yes, let's do that. 
And uh, when I saw Al Hassauna, this uh, lawyer, smiling uh, uh, with an intense satisfaction, I realized that there was something wrong with this. <laughs> but, uh, you know, not the kind of thing that he would smile upon uh, in any event. And then it dawned upon me, and I said something to the uh, Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister said, uh, Your Majesty, let's have a, uh, a five-minute uh, pause. And the lawyers this time uh, were on the right side, and Israeli lawyers, and they said that if we had to repeal all the laws pertaining to war on the Israeli side concerning the conduct of the state of Israel from now on, it would mean to say that all the property which had been taken over by Israel, which had belonged originally to Palestinians, or not only Palestinians, inside the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, would no longer be subject to the, uh, the instructions of, uh, of war. In other words, we would have to uh, give back all these territories to the people who owned them because the state of war had come to an end. And therefore, we could not have this clause in the peace treaty. And we, in the end, we didn't have the clause in the peace treaty. And to this very day, despite the fact that we have a peace treaty with Israel and Jordan, the rules of law which apply to territories and to property still are uh, uh, legal binding, legally binding uh, um, uh, elements on the, our statute book. And although we are in a state of peace with Jordan, the property is under the law of war this very day. I think this, this second incident would probably indicate to you how complex the problems are in the Middle East. It's not simply a question of making peace or war between countries. It's a question of what is the history which has ultimately resulted in a peace treaty, what is the history which deals with the relationship between nations and between uh, creeds in the Middle East and therefore it's an oversimplification to believe that if for instance now just for argument's sake uh, the Arab side or the Palestinian side will sign to the fact that they recognize Israel as the, as the state of the people of Israel what does this mean? What does it connote? And if we demand that they recognize Israel as the state of the Jewish people, would we like to accept the fact that we would be uh, requested to recognize that the Palestinian state is the Palestinian state of the Islamic population of Palestine? Will we say that we recognize the Islamic character of part of the land of Israel? Can we live with this? And we will say, of course, yes, but we are a different case. We are separate. But as you know, it's very difficult in international law and elsewhere to say, yes, but this is a separate issue, because we have to cater to the 
sensitivities of the Jews and so forth, and very quickly we'll also say something and mention the word Holocaust and things like that. We're now um, at a stage in the Middle East where we are unwinding by force of the events of the last few years, the arrangements which were put in place by the big powers 100 years ago after the world, world War, the First World War, which resulted in the um, uh, disappearance of the Ottoman Empire, which uh, governed large tracts of land in the Middle East, and states were created. States were created, and uh, some of the states had monarchies, and some of the states had republics. Depending on the power behind this particular part of the Middle East, because the Middle East was also, I'd like to remind you, was uh, divided to some extent into areas of influence between France and Britain. And since Britain has a monarchy, but uh, it is a constitutional monarchy, and uh, there's no problem uh, to have a, uh, a uh, parliamentary system, um, when it came to France, France did not have a monarchy. And people said, you can't have a monarch in Lebanon if there's no monarch in Paris. Uh, if uh, it's a French mandate, you can't have a king, let's say, of Syria. And therefore, the man who was going to be king of Syria, Faisal, uh, they had to find a monarchy for him, and they decided it would be in Iraq. So Iraq, Iraq became a monarchy. And that's exactly what happened. The result of this, we had a situation in the Middle East in which the uh, interests and the character of the, the way this was carved up had little to do with the interests of the people in the region itself. And now, after 100 years, this is now beginning to wind down. And what we see today is the gradual dismemberment of the arrangements of World War I. We see that more and more areas in the Middle East are not subject to any sovereignty, which is recognized internationally. We see that governments, many governments, do not have control of the areas over which they have sovereignty. We see, for instance, that Egypt does not control the Sinai. We see, for instance, that in Syria, they don't control parts of the country because there's a civil war. We see in Lebanon that the south of the country is in the hands of the Hezbollah. And we now have a situation in which we have what you call non-state actors, which is a relatively new term. Non-state actors in the Middle East, uh, movements like the Hezbollah, like the Hamas. And these non-state actors take on a life of their own. By saying non-state actors, you're saying that they are not states, and they're not states. Hamas in Gaza is not a state. Hezbollah is not a state. And therefore, all the provisions which uh, are a result of international law do not apply to these, whatever you call them, these non-state actors, because international law deals with the relations between nations, the nation-state. And if they're not a nation-state, they do not have to adhere to international law. 
And when, for instance, you say to that the Hamas had, uh, had uh, kidnapped uh, an Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, and you demanded them to respect the laws of the Geneva Convention, which apply to soldiers who are uh, captured in battle. The Hamas is not a state. So why should they adhere to the Geneva Convention? The Geneva Convention is for states. Unless, of course, you, you uh, widen this, uh, this uh, to include non-states as well. But then you come to uh, all kinds of other issues which, which come up as to whether, how do you deal with a non-state actor? And we are now in a situation in which the number of non-state actors is rising. And these non-state actors, when it comes to the question of force, not only have uh, control of their, of their areas, they also have strong military elements which are organized like the military elements of a state. And the fact that we call them terrorists is fine. We say that Hezbollah is a terrorist organization, fine. Hamas is a terrorist organization, fine. Al-Qaeda, of, 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 uh, originally of Bin Laden, is a, uh, is a uh, terrorist group, yes. But Al-Qaeda and Bin Laden is not only what they did to the Twin Towers in, in New York here. Al-Qaeda today, when it's fighting in Syria, is fighting as an organized fighting group. It has companies, it has... Uh, it has battalions, it has commanders, it has a, a structure of a national army. And it also has the weaponry of a national army. And how can the Middle East contend with such a situation in which we have states which do not have, are unable to impose their sovereignty on the areas which are in, in, they supposedly are part of their, of their sovereign land? And on the other hand, those who are in, in, in control, they don't uh, have to adhere to any uh, of the rules and regulations of the international community as such. We also have other uh, uh, things which are coming up, like autonomous regions, like in, uh, in Iraq. Iraq, from the outset, was a, an artificial uh, combination of areas which uh, had very little in common between themselves, the Shiite uh, part of it and the, uh, the uh, uh, Muslim uh, Sunni part of it and the Kurds. And according to the uh, wishes of the colonial uh, system, those who were put in charge of the areas which became supposedly independent states were to a large extent minorities and not majorities in their country. The Sunnites are only 20% of Iraq. But they, Saddam Hussein and his predecessors and King Faisal, they were the Sunnites. And the lady who put all this together, a lady called uh, Bell, uh, Gertrude Bell, who uh, was the, uh, the British intelligence officer, she said in a, in a letter to her father, God Almighty never let the Shiites come to power in Iraq. This will be catastrophe. And she wrote this in 1918, which is almost 100 years ago, and indeed, now that the Shiites are in, in control, and they are majority, all hell is let loose. And we have also in Syria a minority in charge, the Alawites. The Alawites are less than 20% of the country. 
but they're about three million or three and a half million strong out of a, cup, uh, a country of 21, 20, one and a half million. And they're very powerful and they're very well organized. And the Assad clan, which uh, took over uh, the uh, control of, 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 of uh, Syria uh, ages ago, was a very effective clan. And the Syrian army has been a very effective and at times was a very, very uh, serious uh, uh, adversary of the Israeli defense forces. And they've created um, alliances there. One of the biggest alliances in Syria was the alliance between the Alawite uh, 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 group in, in Syria and the Christian uh, uh, minority in Syria, which are one and a half million. I had the opportunity of meeting some of the leaders of that Christian community a year or so ago. Came over from Damascus to a meeting that I was attending. And the uh, head of the uh, Christian uh, church, Christian uh, uh, Aramaic church, spoke perfect Aramaic to me. And he also knew Hebrew. My Hebrew was better than his. But his Aramaic was far superior to mine, and he had no Aramaic at all. And Assad, the son, by the way, Bashar Assad, who is now the leader, grew up in a, within the Christian community in Damascus. And therefore, all these elements which I'm talking about are creating a plethora of, of groups, of non-state actors of one kind or another, and all of them are vying for some kind of uh, expression in what is happening today in the, uh, what you call the Arab Spring. One has to say that in addition to that, we have a situation in which we have the overlay of the great powers. We have the overlay of the great powers, some of them who have been in the Middle East for quite a long time like Britain and France and the United States of America. But also Russia. So Russia, the Middle East, has always been fair ground for their activity. The Crimea, which is now in the news, was where the, was where the uh, Russian fleet was, uh, was, uh, was uh, established and which was operative within the Mediterranean. They had to go through the Bosporus uh, um, Canal but yes, the Russian traditionally had a role in the Middle East. And now Russia is becoming a world power, trying to uh, regain its status as a world power, and is coming back into the Middle East. And we have to take this into account. We have to realize this. And the Russians have their interests as well. And they have the interests of a great power. And when it comes to an interest of great power, yes, they uh, exercise those, those interests in a very, very uh, uh, definitive, definitive way, as we've seen the last two, three uh, weeks in uh, Crimea and in Ukraine, maybe. So when you have a situation like this, where the great powers are vying for, for, uh, for uh, influence in the Middle East, this is something which you cannot ignore. A new actor on the other side is China. 
China in the last uh, 10 years, ladies and gentlemen, has had a uh, foreign uh, aid program, which according to a study of RAND Corporation, which I think is uh, quite a respected uh, think tank here in the United States, I hope nobody will uh, dispute this here this evening. Uh, it's not as good as the Columbia School, but nevertheless, <laughs> it has a reputation of sorts. They found that the Chinese foreign aid programs the last 10 years have encompassed over 90 countries around the world to the tune of $671 billion. This is an amazing uh, uh, foreign aid program. Most of the aid, the number one uh, recipients of aid of China are Africa and Latin America. And China is a very, very, very important big power. And I think you will realize also, if you take the pivot to Asia of the President Obama and what is happening in Southeast Asia these days, the rising uh, tension there, that China wants to play a role in the Middle East. China is bringing two railroads into the Middle East. One of the railroads is going to uh, more or less uh, follow the path of the Silk Road of days gone by. And this railroad is going to go from China all through Pakistan, Iran, Syria, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. And there's already a, uh, an agreement between the government of Syria and, uh, and, and, and China that the end uh, station of this railroad is going to be on the shores of the Mediterranean. So China wants to become a Mediterranean power as well. And we have to take this into account as well. And we have to realize that in our part of the world, it's going to become ever more complex than it ever was before. And China is also building a, uh, a uh, string of uh, ports which begin in the South China Sea and go as far and even reach Port Sudan on the east coast of Africa. A series of ports which are going to be serviced by railroads which will be uh, um, feeding in uh, uh, goods to the ships which will fly those shores. And in all this system of what the United States now calls the string of pearls, there's one pearl still left in which they don't have an interest yet, and that is Eilat. But they'd very much like to be in Eilat. And uh, there's talk of a railroad from Eilat, which is going to lead to the Mediterranean. And uh, the government of Israel to this day uh, believes that if the Chinese build it, that is the best uh, way to do things. And this is also something which we have to take into account. On the top of all this, ladies and gentlemen, there's something which we have to be clear about. And that is the way the people in the Middle East view themselves. If you travel to Saudi Arabia today and you take somebody, uh, uh, you meet somebody, and you say, tell me, uh, where are you from? They say, oh, I'm from Najaf. Not sure. Yes, I'm from the Sudairi tribe. Sudairi tribe? Really? 
Yes, yes, we're Sunnites. Oh, yes. No, no, where are you from? Oh, you mean where I'm from? Yes, I'm from Saudi Arabia. The relationship of a person to his state is number four on the list. The identity of a person in the Middle East, the number one uh, feature of his identity is his tribe, his religion. These come before the national identity, before the passport which they use as a travel document. And this, of course, enables people to say the states, the state system, the nation-state system, which was good for Europe and so forth, for reasons of Europe, don't necessarily apply to the Middle East. If you're going to take the system which was set up after World War I and you're going to uh, <coughs> more or less uh, uh, deconstruct it, you can deconstruct it and reach all kinds of conclusions which may or may not be uh, palatable, acceptable to uh, the Western world, the Western uh, um, precepts, the Western, Western uh, culture. But yes, it's a different story, a different world. And we're going to find ourselves in a situation, ladies and gentlemen, that due to the wars which are being fought in the Middle East today, and due to other events which probably might take place in Europe in future. The numbers no longer shock people anymore. People are very upset about 160, 150,000 people killed in Syria in the civil war there. Yes, it's a shocking figure. But I believe in the Congo it's three and a half, three and a half million in the civil wars in the Congo. And I believe it's even the President of the United States who alluded to it in one of his uh, uh, comments at the press conference when he was asked about his feelings about this. And I still haven't said anything of the way that the, uh, Russia decided to put an end to the uh, Chechen rebellion. How many people were killed there? What happened there? What exactly happened there? And there are many other things. And numbers are not speaking to people the way they spoke before. And if you look in modern history of the last hundred years, you find that not only the world wars has consumed so many human lives, World War I, World War II, millions and millions of people Russia alone, the Soviet Union, lost 20 million people in the World War II. Out of over 50 million who died in that war. 50 million. Yeah. Difficult to grasp it. So the horror of war, the, 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 the uh, feeling of, uh, of, of, of uh, aversion to war, is not something which is going to get people, galvanize them into action. There's going to be more than ever before, as it has been in the past, the interests, the interests of countries in the Middle East, the interests of the people in the Middle East, and the interests of the world powers in the Middle East, and so on and so forth. And religion. Particularly Islam. 
Um, over 50 years ago, I was uh, on, on a mission in an African state. And um, one night, uh, I was there in a, how should I put it, um, an identity which was very far from my true identity. And um, in those days, there were no uh, communications of the way we have them today. There was no, uh, hardly any telephone communications and so forth. Uh, uh, my wife was sitting here this evening and who suffered a lot from me and uh, I hope you will uh, permit me not to go into all the details, but the su suffering including those long absences of mine uh, as she was at home with the children. Um, I had no way of communicating to, to my headquarters where and what I was doing, and they had no way of communicating to me what I should do. I was on my own. And I had a smaller transistor radio. And uh, <coughs> uh, around 2 o'clock in the morning, I uh, used to put it on. Uh, people are not around to listen to uh, Israel radio uh, on shortwave. So I knew it something what was going on in my country. And I heard that there had been a, um, a, um, a bloody revolution in Baghdad. And the, uh, the leader, Abdul uh, Karim Qasim, his name was, was murdered. And it's true to uh, Iraqi tradition, his uh, body was dragged through the streets of uh, Baghdad, just as uh, his predecessor, King Faisal, the cousin of King Hussein of Jordan, also died and also had a similar uh, uh, burial, if you call it that way. And I was the only one in a group of people there. Uh, we were at an international conference, and I was there uh, as well. And um, I asked myself, you know, um, I'm the only person here who knows this. What do I do with this information? Information is only useful if you can use it. And I remember that uh, there were two Syrians there um, who had come to this conference. So I decided to knock on their door at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning and say, you know, I have a, an item of information for you. Um, this, is, this has happened in Baghdad, and I did this. And uh, they were so excited, they didn't even ask me exactly who I was and so forth. <laughs> but they sat with me for three or four hours telling me what their views were on the situation and how they related to it. And one of them ultimately became Prime Minister of Syria, and the other um, became uh, the ideological head of a party called the Ba'ath Party, which was the Arab Socialist Party of the Middle East. And they explained to me how they believed, they believed, they were going to secularize the Middle East. Because the Ba'ath Party was a secular party. It was the only secular political party actually in the Middle East. And they, they had a majority in uh, Syria and they had a majority in Iraq. Um, ultimately, they became tools of a dictatorship, both in Syria and in Iraq. But the idea originally was to be a socialist party, a secular socialist party. This is no longer possible, ladies and gentlemen. You cannot speak about the secular party. You can speak about parties who uh, have this and those ideas. But secularism 
as a uh, as a uh, how should I put it as a uh, as a principal aim of a political party in the Arab world is dead. And even if you are secular, you go through the motions of uh, behaving uh, according to the tenets of religion uh, and. Uh, you do it. And in Ramadan, you fast during the day, and you don't drink alcohol. Uh, obviously, uh, this is not always uh, religiously kept, shall we say, but nevertheless. How of all this are we going to create some semblance of order, of order in the region? I think it's impossible to uh, forecast this. It's really impossible to forecast. And I believe that we are in for a long period. It's going to be a long night before something uh, important and useful emerges from the situation around us. And we shouldn't delude ourselves if we sign a piece of paper of one kind or another that suddenly uh, the Messiah will appear. Assuming that there is a Messiah and he will appear. <laughs> Assuming we know what a Messiah means. And on that, certainly Jewish tradition, there are more than one uh, way of interpreting that. If you read Maimonides, uh, you will find uh, very interesting interpretation of what is the Messiah. By the way, if I may say, a um, leading Israeli philosopher has written a fantastic book about Maimonides. It's coming out in, um, it's come out in English now. Um, and uh, it, the author is a man called Moshe Halberta. He's also a professor of law, I think, who uh, uh, teaches at NYU, if I may mention the word here in this uh, <laughs> university. And uh, it reminds me of this, of that uh, Jewish professor who said Maimonides is so uh, given to uh, different interpretations. It's my, my, my Maimonides, your Maimonides, <laughs> his Maimonides, everybody has his Maimonides. So we have many Maimonides. But I recommend you to read the book on Maimonides by Moshe Alberta. And absent the Messiah, Although we pray, pray that he comes tomorrow, or those who are really religious pray he'll come even tonight. But uh, given the fact that the chances of this are unclear, uh, just as the Arab Spring is unclear, so this is also one of the invulnerables. But nevertheless, I believe that we're going to have this situation of, uh, of um, insecurity. In a situation like this, ladies and gentlemen, how can we conduct ourselves? So far, I've told you all the problems. So how can we, how can, for instance, an a intelligence uh, organization, how can it get its act together? If the prime minister calls the head of Mossad and says, tell me, give me an assessment of what's going to happen. He can't say, you know, I can't tell you, I don't know. I, re I remember I learned the rule of very early stage in my uh, service that you will never tell the Prime Minister I don't know. <laughs> the danger is that he says, oh, if you don't know, I'll tell you what I know, and then you're in real trouble. 
I think we have to realize that despite the fact that it looks so almost, I'd say, helpless, hopeless and helpless, nevertheless, ultimately there will be elites who control the situation. Even if you have mass demonstrations, in the end, there will emerge leaderships and groups who control the situation, who, by the way, who are not necessarily those who actually carry out the demonstrations. See what happened in Egypt. The people in charge today are not the people who went to, uh, to demonstrate at Tahrir Square. The people, the young people, the students and so forth, the people of the Facebook who, who use the uh, social uh, networks and so forth, those are not the people who control the situation. And I think it's a good guess to say that the elites will emerge. And they are serious. And they will be those who will ultimately be called upon to assure the, the, the basics of what is necessary for any population. <coughs> number one is food, and number two is water. And there's already an acute shortage of food and water in the Middle East. There's a big shortage of water in Iran today. Uh, sources of water in Iran in many places around the, the country have dried up. Entire lakes have disappeared. <coughs> the population in the provinces are restless. Food has not become cheaper even after the lifting of sanctions. And there is a lot of tension under the surface. And the people of Iran have made clear what their desire has been. And when they elected uh, the present, uh, uh, President Rouhani to be president of Iran, and he ran on the ticket that he would set things straight on the problem of economy and so on and so forth, he would get things straight. They put their confidence in him. And Rouhani and the people close to him realize that they don't have all the time in the world to make true on their commitment to get things straight. And the pressures on the leadership in Iran are increasing daily. And there are a lot of people in Iran who don't like the fact that so much of their efforts and their capabilities and their money has been invested in the war in, in Syria. And there's growing resentment over the body bags which are coming back daily from Syria as a result of the civil war there. And amongst the players in the Middle East, I said there is the non-state actors and there is the, 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 the leaders of the states who do not control all the, all the areas there, there are the elites, and the elites in every situation, ladies and gentlemen, they are going to be preponderant in the Middle East. They will also be preponderant, preponderant in other parts of the world. 
they're going to be preponderant also in, in China today. And China is on the precipice of a deep, deep crisis of multiple, uh, of multiple uh, uh, dimensions. There have been events in the last few months in the west of China amongst the Muslim population there. 60 million Muslims in China. You say, what are 60 million uh, as, as, a, as compared to 1.2, 1.3 billion uh, population? Yes, but they are all there and they're all concentrated in one area. And there have been acts of terrorism there. And the Chinese are very concerned about this terrorism. And 60 million, if you compare it to states in the Middle East, well, there are 90 million in Egypt, there are 90 million in Iran, but not in uh, Iraq, and not in Syria, and not in Lebanon. About 5,000 or 6,000 imams there. More than in the whole of uh, Palestine, by the way. And I think that this is going to have a major effect on the way elites will emerge to deal with the problem, the daily problems of survival of these people. So, given all this, ladies and gentlemen, the real problems of the Middle East are problems which are far beyond what has been known up to now. This is not to say we mustn't deal with the problems the way they are. The Palestinian issue and many other issues, problems in other parts of the Middle East, yes. <clears throat> but we shouldn't be misled by thinking that by dealing with the Palestinian problem, we're going to do something which is going to change the, the uh, texture in the Middle East. It's not going to happen. And in Israel, we'll have to be very, very um, clear as to the way we have sounding boards to tell us what's going to happen. They may not be the kind of sounding boards we had in the past. <clears throat> but the sounding boards we had in the past didn't uh, come up and tell us that uh, there's going to be a, 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 an Arab Spring. And I believe that the countries of the world should really be careful as the way and how they intervene in the situation on which side they take, or if they should take sides. And one of the worst cases of this has been, you know, uh, has been Libya. The only case in recent years where the, the world, the Western world, took sides and went in and did something. But what was the result of what they did? First of all, um, They removed a dictator. Well, there are many dictators in the Middle East. Why remove Mr. Gaddafi? Why not Mr. Assad? By this, if you are in the business of removing dictators, you know, uh, you can spend a lifetime removing dictators. <laughs> well, why choose Libya? Libya had reached an agreement several years before with the United States and Britain to dismantle their 
nuclear military capabilities. This was an agreement which was reached with two gentlemen. One was the deputy head of MI6, the British Secret Intelligence Service, and the other was the deputy director of the CIA, who traveled several times to, uh, to Libya and who dealt directly with Gaddafi. This was the only case in which an Arab Muslim state had decided to dismantle its capability and was true to its word. They removed a threat, a threat to all of Southern Europe, a threat maybe not only to Southern Europe. And there was an agreement on that as to what would be done in exchange. And Gaddafi was assured that his regime would not be questioned. But it was questioned. And not only that, by all accounts, the final act on Gaddafi was uh, a French bomb which uh, bombed the, uh, the convoy in which he was traveling. But what was left of Libya? Libya, ladies and gentlemen, is a country of four and a half million population. Less than 20% of Syria. What was achieved by that? Libya today is a chaotic country with no leadership. The Prime Minister just three weeks ago uh, ran away from his country for several days because he was afraid of the armed groups who, was out, who were out to kill him. Libya is total chaos today. So before you move in, before you take action, be careful. Be very, very careful. And if you can control the situation from, from afar, if you can make sure that your interests, your major interests are assured, don't rush to be involved. And I think there is merit in those who say that a country like the United States of America, who's had the experiences of Iraq and Afghanistan, should tread uh, carefully before going into a third uh, adventure of this kind or another. I think, uh, ladies and gentlemen, in conclusion, that when we talk about the prospects of the Middle East, we have to reach the conclusion that maybe some of the people there should be left on their own. Left on their own. to face the problems on their own. And I think that we in Israel should also, to some extent, to be left on our own. It is not to say we should not become, we should not continue to be an ally of the United States, of the country. I think we should. It's not that we should not expect American support. I think we should expect it and receive it. But what has to be very circumspect the way you handle this. And a relationship is always a two-way street. And if you look at Jewish history over the ages, if you look at the Bible and so forth, you always find that there's always been controversy, political controversy. What is the biggest danger, from the north or from the south, from Egypt or from Syria or from Babylon or wherever it is? Read the, read the political history through the um, prophets, and you see it. 
that those who say the prophets of years gone by was the press of those days, who a stroke the population also tried to fashion public opinion. So maybe the modern day journalists are the prophets of today, like Tom Friedman and people like that. Just to mention one. But there are other prophets. And like we have it, you know, we have major prophets, minor prophets, you know, fleeting prophets, temporary prophets, etc. But having said that, I think we should not lose uh, faith and belief that ultimately people come up with solutions for their peoples. People come up with solutions for the, to deal with the problems, the day-to-day -day problems. I think you will see it in Egypt. I think you'll see it in Iran. And there will be a problem with Iran, with the nuclear problem in Iran. I haven't said too much on that. I didn't want to dwell only on that. If there's a question, I'll take it. If there's no question, I will be happy that you have saved me the necessity of taking it. But nevertheless, I think that if we keep our powder dry to the best of our ability, we'll all emerge better in a few years' time. And I think we have to be patient, extremely patient. And we have to not expect instant um, solutions to problems. And let me end by a story about patience. Um, Immediately after Israel signed a peace treaty with Jordan, a few weeks after that, uh, the world was surprised, especially in Israel, by a, uh, a visit that the Prime Minister at the time, Rabin, uh, paid to the Principality of Oman on the Persian Gulf, which also controls the uh, western side of the Straits of Hormuz. And Rabin flew there um, on a night flight of the Israeli Air Force, and with the agreement of the Omanis, he announced the, um, his visit in the meeting when he was on his way back. They asked that nothing be revealed until the meeting takes place. And uh, for once, we kept our word. <laughs> and we, it was very difficult for Israelis not to, uh, to leak the fact that, his, that he was going to Iran, uh, Oman, and so forth and so forth. And nobody asked, you know, how did this come about? When did it come about? How did it come about? Well, this is not the first visit of, of some Israeli to Oman. Israelis have been there more than one time before. And I will tell you that I was the first Israeli to be there in 1975, which was about almost 20 years before. 20 years it took us to keep this relationship and to develop it. And the leader of Oman is a very uh, quixotic leader, please don't quote him. Actually, he came to power because his father, um, uh, who was suspicious of his intentions, um, locked him up in a tower in Moscow. And he had very few friends, but he had one friend who was a, uh, a retired uh, Canadian officer, and uh, who befriended him, who visited him in the tower, and 
at one point said, you know, you shouldn't spend the rest of your life in the town. There's only one way you can do that, and that is that you should uh, succeed your father. He said, well, my father is still alive. He said, well, uh, maybe we should do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> so one night, um, uh, this uh, Canadian officer was able to uh, enter the, uh, the tower and to uh, affect the uh, departure of the, the prince, and the two of them uh, surprised the guards of the palace and came in and entered the uh, bedroom of the um, of the sultans of the sultan of uh, of uh, Oman at the time, um, and uh, the Canadian said to the um, sultan, "said uh, We think you, we think you should leave the country." He said, "No, I don't think uh, I should leave. I'm uh, the, uh, the ruler of this country, and you are committing an act of uh, treason against me, and uh, I'll call in the guards." And uh, they told him, you can't call in the guards because the guards are, the guards are, are, they took a leave. They uh, gave him an an overnight holiday and uh, they're not around. (laughs) Nevertheless, he said, I I don't want to leave. I'm not going to leave. So the Canadian pulled the gun and shot the uh, leader in the leg. And he said, "Uh, do you understand what I mean now? I mean, uh, you know, you can see, you can still walk on one leg, but if you don't have both legs, you're going to be in deep trouble. So the Sultan uh, took an assessment of the situation and decided that he wanted his at least one leg uh, in good shape, and he left the country. And that's how the present Sultan of Oman became Sultan of Oman. <laughs> well, Oman was then at war with uh, South Yemen. There was such a thing called South Yemen. And the war wasn't going very well. And maybe a person here or there wanted to give him a bit of a, advice as to how to run the war, and he took the advice and he won the war again. In one sentence, I covered a multitude of sins, as you can imagine. <laughs> and this is not the only case, ladies and gentlemen. It really is not. You have to look far into the future. So the last thing uh, I'm going to tell you second story is a story which began in 1968 when we received uh, an approach from over 20 uh, groups alleged groups who were leading the uh, movement for the uh, independence of southern Sudan look at the map of Sudan the south Sudan is Christian animist, several million there And um, I went to see them. There were over 20 people there. I met each one separately. Each one said, I'm the president of South Sudan. <laughs> each one had a um, Samsonite briefcase, identical to all the others, with documents in it about this movement. The only difference was the name on top. It was changed each time to uh, conform to the person I met. So to cut a long story so- short, uh, we chose one, one of these people. And uh, the end was that we, um, we decided that we might do something for South Sudan. It was 1968, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody had thought of South Sudan. Nobody in the world cared about South Sudan. Nobody had an inkling of what was going on in South Sudan. It was the backwater of the backwater of Africa. Um, there was no way of entering South Sudan except on foot. 
and we had a group there, a small little uh, group who went in there and to look around. And then uh, my chief uh, said to me, uh, I think we should go and see it. I said, well, uh, you know, we'll have to go on foot. He said, there's no way I can do it because I can't tell the Prime Minister, Mr. Mayor, look, I'm going to be away for two months. And she'd say, where are you going? Well, I'm going on foot to South Sudan. You know. I said, well, what's that going on foot? Strange. <laughs> so in the end, um, we arranged for a, um, uh, our people there to prepare an airstrip. And they prepared an airstrip, and we were able from uh, from uh, from a neighbouring Uganda to get a Cessna aircraft, and we got on the aircraft, and we flew into South Sudan, and we landed on the airstrip, and um, the engine stopped, and there was silence all around. Nobody came up to the aircraft. Our people were there, but we didn't see them, and we had no idea what had happened to them. We had contact with them before we went in, but not after. And then suddenly we saw the bush moving, and gradually people emerged from the bush, scantily clad, clad with uh, arrows and bows and uh, all kinds of other uh, uh, equipment, military equipment of days gone by. So we saw them, and then we saw our people from afar, so we got out of the plane, and as we alerted, we got off the plane, um, my boss and I, we were seized, shoulder high, and we had about 200 people there dancing with us shoulder high, chanting things which we didn't understand. After 10 or 15 minutes, uh, my chief shouted to me, uh, tell me, um, you remember those movies uh, we used to see, you know, uh, those people dancing and so forth, what happened in the end? I said, I haven't seen the cauldron yet. <laughs> well, in the end, ladies and gentlemen, we helped the people of South Sudan in more ways than one. And if you go to South Sudan today, I don't recommend it because it's very uh, treacherous to get in and if you don't have a a real uh, um, team of bodyguards. Um, some of them here may not want to uh, volunteer. <laughs> I don't recommend that either. Um, if you go to South Sudan, you ask them, who are your greatest friends in the world? They say, Israel. They helped us get our independence. In 1968, it took almost 40 years of an investment. So I'm saying this, and there are other instances which I would prefer not to mention today, but I'm giving you some indication. It's not as if there's nothing to be done, there are all kinds of things that can be done, but you have to have a vision. And um, Jews are famous for their visions. And also for catastrophes. Yes, <laughs> we've made our mistakes as well, and we have suffered enormously from our mistakes as well. I mean, we've, we've suffered from anti-Semitism and pogroms and anything you can imagine, and the and the Spanish Inquisition and the and the pogroms in Ukraine in the 17th century and so on and so forth. And I have not yet mentioned the Holocaust. But nevertheless, we've always been creative and looked beyond. And I think that's what's called for today. So having said that, 
I tried to do two things this evening. A, to describe the almost impossible situation in we're in, and B, to tell you that salvation may not be around the corner, but it's uh, within our grasp if we play our hand rightly. Thank you. And while you're assembling your thoughts, I'm going to do what you don't want, and I'm going to ask the first question, and you, you sort of invited it in an implicit way, um, that we can be patient and wait out many situations and how important it is to understand the complexity and that uh, things will evolve on their own. Uh, I think I've never heard of more interesting, cogent, and even brilliant uh, presentation. But you yourself acknowledge there is a tangible problem that's on all of our minds. You don't have to go into a, a long analysis of it that you probably don't want to do. But I think everybody here would like some bottom line for you, from you on how the immediate issue of an Iranian nuclear weapon uh, should be handled by Israel, by the United States, by the European Union, by the P5 plus one, by the civilized world. Um, I'm not surprised by the question. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've always been told in my profession that there are no impossible questions, there are only dangerous answers. <laughs> Let's look at the upside. The Iranians came to the table to negotiate. They didn't come to the, the table because they liked who they were negotiating with. They came to the table because they realized that they had no option. That if they didn't negotiate and get some resolution of the problem, of their problem, um, they would be in really in dire states. And there's a negotiation going on. And for this negotiation to uh, materialize, um, they have to understand that they will not be able to do what they really need to do for their country without reaching a resolution of the problem in such a way that will allow the world to do two things when the ultimate solution is reached if it is reached. One is to verify the solution, and second is to trust and verify. As George Schultz said to President Reagan when he said how you negotiate with the Russians, trust and verify. Um, I'm one of those who believe that the United States has a few people uh, aboard. It's uh, people at the top who now know how to negotiate. I am um, one of those who believe that the United States is a, the biggest power in the world today and will be such for a very long time to come. But that's not important, what I think. 
the Iranians think their dream has always been to reach an accommodation with the United States of America. They have a very close relationship with Russia, an enormously close relationship with Russia. Russia is one of the biggest providers of, uh, of financial aid and of military aid. Just last week, the Russians announced that they're going to build two new uh, nuclear reactors in uh, Iran at the same time as the negotiations begin. But they realized that they had to come to terms and some kind of understanding of the United States of America. And the Iranians, from their point of view, the prize is not how to get their relationship back on track with the world at large. They want a relationship with the United States of America. Because they understand that the, despite all the things which have been said, these disparaging words which have been used against the United States of America and its leaderships, nevertheless the United States is number one in the world and will probably be so for quite some time to come. In order for this to happen, there will have to be revelation of those things that the Iranians have not yet revealed. They have said that they don't have a military program. We know that they have a military program. The United States knows they have a military program. We know a few things about this, uh, this uh, military program, which we do not divulge, for obvious reasons. But if you are to reach a, a, an agreement which is trust and verify, you can't verify something that the other side says it doesn't have, so you can't verify what's going on. So I believe this is a matter which will have to be uh, resolved. And I believe that the Iranians will have to, what, as you say in this country, bite the bullet. How to bring them to bite the bullet? Well, I have a few ideas about this. We couldn't talk about this at great, too great length. But I can tell you I've met Iranians in recent months from the administration, the present administration in Tehran. And they understand this. They understand that in the end they'll have to cough something up and they understand that what they're going to have to cough up is going to be very painful to them. But the alternative for them is very, very, very grim. And therefore, it's a question of how you negotiate. And I hope that the powers that be in this country will negotiate uh, um, in a clever manner, in a creative manner, and I'm confident that this will happen in the end. If it doesn't happen in the end, there'll be trouble, serious trouble. And there could also be a, a military showdown, certainly. But I'm sure all of the, everybody wants to avoid this, and no less than everybody, the Iranians themselves. In Iran, there is a non-state actor, the Revolutionary Guards. They are a state within a state. And they're getting a very bad beating now in Syria. I have raised the idea in an article I wrote for the New York Times about a year and a half ago that Syria could be the Vietnam of Iran. And it's on the way to becoming so. If I think we, we all of us, do what we have to do, Israel does what it has to do, the United States does what it has to do, and others do what they have to do, we have more than a fighting chance that we're going to win this one. And I think that instead of wringing our hands all the day and saying, you know, how terrible this is and how terrible that is, 
I think we should encourage those who are negotiating to negotiate to the best of their ability. And I think the things that they've done so far, which are not all that bad. I have several questions that were, I'm not sure who the author is that are on, and I'm rejecting them all. Uh, but one of them I'm going to repeat without asking you to answer it, just to show you the profundity with which an institution of higher learning like Columbia University's audience receives and understands your analysis. The question is, who killed Arafat? Okay. Um, yes, question. Uh, sir, uh, thank you for a wide-ranging discussion of the, what was, in my opinion, the most critical region of the world, uh, despite what the current occupants of the White House might be doing with their commitment to Asia. Sorry, I'll, I'll speak up. Despite what the current occupants uh, in the White House might say about commitment to Asia, I think you touched on a broad survey of the most critical region in the world. Um, I am a PhD student in political science. I'm also a program coordinator for the Roger Hertog program on uh, law and national security here. I also served as a research assistant to Condi Rice as she wrote her memoirs. And she reflected quite fondly about uh, the lessons she learned observing Prime Minister Sharon's sheep at his farm. Um, she also uh, obviously was very involved in intensive shuttle diplomacy uh, behind the scenes that I think. You said at the beginning of this that language is so important because it conveys a sense of one's state of mind. And um, Rouhani's predecessor was very uh, loose with his rhetoric as far as um, the threat uh, he posed, Iran poses to the existence of the state of Israel. And I'm curious to know what you think, whether uh, Iran poses an existential threat to Israel and the extent to which negotiations over Iran's nuclear program, negotiations over serious chemical weapons program, actually legitimates the very regimes that the United States has been interested in talking about. Well, I don't, I'm not sure that I understood the question, but I'll try and answer what I understood was the question. I was speeding it up in the interest uh, um, I'm slightly older than you, and I'm sometimes slow on the uptake, so please be uh, uh, merciful to me. I hope you're that fast at the same age. No, no. Um, I don't like the term existential threat. I don't think the existence of Israel is in question. I think it's impossible to destroy Israel for a variety of reasons, both defensive and offensive. You know, I know all those people who have written uh, articles about one or two nuclear bombs, how much it would take to destroy Israel. Uh, it's not as simple as all that, to send a nuclear device. Is it technically possible and so forth? Yes, maybe in one way or another. But don't think that Israel is just sitting by idly and waiting for this to happen. And I don't want to say more than that. Believe me, we know that this is a threat when we're dealing with it. And I don't think, the, as I said, the existence of Israel is in question. I also don't think that it is, um, if I may say so, uh, all that wise to trump the fact that there is an existential threat to Israel and that the Iranians are the threat. Because by so doing, you are doing two things. A, you are demoralizing the Israeli public. And B, you are telling the Iranians, we believe that you can destroy us. And by so saying, you are 
inviting them or encouraging them to try it. If, the, if we say that they can destroy us and they hate our guts, why shouldn't they do it? Why shouldn't they use the information that they glean this way to try something? So for all of these reasons, I don't think that trumpeting this idea of its essential threat is a good idea. By the way, I don't think it has uh, achieved anything. I think uh, maybe in the past there was some merit in it. Maybe, I don't think so, I didn't think so then. But now, I don't think international uh, public opinion uh, um, having been saturated with this daily uh, rant that there's an essential threat are, uh, are sensitive to this anymore. I don't think so. I think that the Iranians should realize that if they don't do what we think they should do and come clear and come clean on it, then uh, there would be dire consequences for them. Yes. I will take one more question. Yeah. Speak up. No, can't hear you up here. Can you hear the mic? Can you tell us, um, based on your time working with Jordanians, Pardon? based on your time working with Jordanians, do you feel that the Syrian refugees, maybe it's two million now, is there a threat that that can topple the regime in terms of uh, draining of the resources? The situation in Jordan is very difficult because uh, Jordan has been the recipient of waves of uh, refugees over the last 20 years from the first Iraqi war, the second Iraqi war, there are more refugees in Jordan almost than the population of Jordan. And therefore, of course, uh, this is a problem which has to be dealt with. I must say, with all uh, due respect, I think the King of Jordan has uh, performed admirably on this up to now. And I think that uh, he should be helped in all possible ways, and he is being helped in a, a variety of ways. And I think that uh, um, I don't see uh, that there is an imminent threat to the to the crown today, and uh, this is not to say that people might try something in the future. Uh, uh, I don't know, but uh, at the moment, uh, Jordan is uh, one of those monarchies in the Middle East which have been stable. By the way, it has been mentioned by not by me but others that of all the countries which have suffered uh, changes of regime. The monarchy somehow, somehow survived. So maybe there's something in the monarchy which uh, is a kind of uh, immune, makes them immune to revolution. I'm not sure this is true, but it may well be something in the DNA of a monarchy. The legitimacy of a monarchy is different than the legitimacy of a president. See, there was one case of a monarchy which was removed, and that was in Iraq. But that was, uh, to a large extent, an artificial monarchy in many respects. Okay, I think uh, we're, go we're going to conclude. There's one more question then, if I could quickly. I know that you, had, you, uh, you, you, you spoke only long term, but I wonder if you have a short term suggestion about what Israel's policy should be uh, about the negotiations with the Palestinians at this point. As um, the introducer said, to me, uh, said about me, I think I'm a practical person. And I think that in the situation that I've described in the Middle East, Israel's policy should be to deal with every player in the Middle East to the best of its ability, and not to disqualify any partner for a dialogue 
whatever his uh, color is. So you should deal with the Palestinian Authority, deal with the Hamas, it necessarily deal with Hezbollah, it necessarily deal with this. I'm a great believer in dialogue, even with your greatest enemies. And as Sun Tzu, the famous uh, Chinese uh, um, strategist said, as far as friends are concerned, keep them close to your heart. When it comes to the enemies, keep them even closer. Maybe uh, short one. We, we learned a great deal tonight. I think everybody agrees on that. We thank Ephraim Alevi for being here with us.